Are you ready to manage your work and personal world better to live a fulfilling, productive life? Then you've come to the right place. Productivity Cast, the weekly show about all things productivity. Here are your hosts, Ray Sidney Smith and Augusto Pinaud, with Francis Wade and Art Gelwicks. And welcome back, everybody, to Productivity Cast. I'm Ray Sidney Smith. I'm Augusto Pinaud. I'm Francis Wade. And I'm Art Gelwicks. Welcome, gentlemen, and welcome to our listeners to this second part in our conversation we're having around the book, Perfect Time-Based Productivity, the second edition, by our very own Francis Wade. I'm going to pass it over to you, Francis, to tell us where we left off, kind of a recap of our last episode, and and then where we left off in the conversation and what we're going to be talking about in this week's episode. Sure. Well, last time we talked about the fact that today's learner or um, today's young person, let's put it that way, people who are younger than we are, are left to their own devices to develop their own productivity system, which they do. They start doing somewhere in their teens. And unlike us oldsters with gray hair, they have very few signposts, um, very few, very little guidance, especially with respect to the, the smartphones that they're using. And with less guidance, it means that the systems they self-develop end up having some gaps when they get into their, let's say, their late teens and early 20s. Uh, this self-development business is true for everyone, but, but for the today's user, today's learner, today's person entering their 20s, there's less signposts and less guidance than there has been in the past. And our hypothesis was that as a result, they need a way to evaluate themselves, which is what they do anyway when they take a a training program or pick up a book, is that they go through a period of self-reflection to say, okay, where am I with respect to what this book or this person or this training is recommending? And we had just gotten to the point where I shared an evaluation I had done in under the guise of playing a game. So I, I shared the fact that I, I, a couple of months ago, I picked up a eSport called Zwift, which is basically a, a bicycling training program online in which you attach a trainer to a Bluetooth transmitter. It transmits the, a signal to your laptop, which then transmits the signal to the game, which links you up to races and rides with hundreds, thousands of people all over the world. So you're essentially pedaling on your bicycle on a trainer against some resistance and you're watching people go by you and you're catching up with groups, but it's all happening on the screen in front of you. And it's, it feels extremely real as I shared the last time. And it's it, of course, makes you very, very fit. And the proof of the pudding has been my own riding. So I've gotten measurably fitter since playing this game two months ago and the guys on guys who I ride with in, in my club are telling me that, yeah, I'm looking much stronger and I feel a lot stronger. Yesterday I rode, I had a six hour ride and had no problem doing it. And so the thing is working. <laughs> you know, it started with a, a, a just kind of a lark because I didn't know where it would go. But the programmers have found a way to give me an experience that translates into real time fitness on the road, you know, where I where I do the the main riding, I guess. And the the idea, which is I guess the one that it, it's just an example of, is that there's a way there are ways to use software to either evaluate or and or to train and or to gamify and or to give someone this immersive kind of experience that's not just about having fun like a, a typical game might be, but actually r- results in a, a real skill. You know, I, 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 I think of Flight Simulator. 
um, and what it does for would-be pilots. It actually does build a real skill. So that's where we left off, is what role does the digital world play in developing real skills? And I guess we're going to tie it back to productivity skills in the end. What Francis is talking about is right in line with a lot of the game design discussion that we've had in past episodes. But I think it's really important to circle back to this on occasion, which is to recognize the importance of certain types of components of game design that re- that really engage us all in the learning process. And really, let, let's let's remove game design and just say good learning is built on some fundamentals. One is what's considered uh, basically lateral thinking. And we've talked about Dr. Edward de Bono's work here with six thinking hats and, and that kind of thing. But in essence, um, interlaced la- learning, in my perspective, is very akin to lateral thinking, which is the idea of taking multiple that's actually wrong. So scratch that. So <laughs> I like both of these concepts. So I like the idea of interlacing your learning. And what that means is that in, in and when you're trying to learn, you are taking different parts of the subject and learning them out of out of order. And the idea is, is that if it's easy, your brain automatically stops learning. If it's difficult, your brain attempts to rise to the occasion. Challenge is what makes us motivated. Challenge is what makes us learn. Human human civilizations, humans as a as a species, we are thankfully who we are because of our ability to face adversity, and it seems as though that's also the way we best grow. That's how how we're best, you know, able to go from where we are to where we want to be. We we embrace challenge. And I think frequently what people want to do is find the path of least resistance. But when it comes to learning, it doesn't actually work that way. And so what, what we want to do is we want to be able to have challenge. And that means don't try to learn things in order. Don't go from part A to part B to part C. Yes, you won't understand part C or part F as well until you circle back around to the material. But the science clearly bears out that when we learn out of order, we actually learn, we understand it better. We also have to make mistakes and get immediate feedback. If you learn something and you don't make a mistake in the process of learning that thing, it, you will learn it less. You will actually retain it less than if you actually learn it, make a mistake along the way, get corrected quickly, and then come to the end, you will actually have learned it better. You'll retain it better. You'll comprehend it better. There's this better learning experience by virtue of you going ahead and having made mistakes. And again, that that tertiary part is actually immediate feedback. So as you're learning, you need to be tested, you need to be, you know, you need to, in some way, shape or form, you need to be able to uh, show that you have actually learned it. And that forces you it's kind of like accountability generally. It's the idea that you have to be held accountable and that that very nature of being tested in some way, shape or form forces the accountability. So from my perspective, I think that these are these are game design principles. These are also learning design principles, whether that's pedagogy or andragogy. This is how we best teach. And it turns out that those are also really, really great mechanisms for teaching us the habits of productivity, teaching us the skills of productivity, and making them so that they become a 
a part of our system that works as a part of, as opposed to a part of our system that then just falls by the wayside, inherent in the idea of a habit, but not necessarily inherent in the skills of productivity. And so that's kind of that piece. And so then if we if we move forward, my my go to for all things is great onboarding in in the tools. And I've really enjoyed some of the ways in which productivity tools have attempted to onboard the user. And, you know, you have these like, you have these tours, you know, it takes you on a tour of the of the software initially. And most people just kind of click through those really quickly, because they just want to get to the interface. And what I recommend to everybody is to slow down and actually follow those tours, do the things that it's asking you to do. I know this with Evernote. Evernote walks you through the, you know, a, a multi-step process to create your first note and to, you know, name your notebook and, you know, create a, you know, create something with the web clipper and, you know, just things of that nature where they walk you through this process. And yet we all get very impatient and we just want to get into the tool and use it. When in reality, there is a learning process that's frequently skipped when we should be taking the time to actually learn how to use the tool. I just uploaded something to the show notes that supports productive error making in learning, productive failure in learning the concept of variance. Some actual tests that were done in the classroom. Um, the idea that it's, it's, it's better to throw someone in the deep end who can't swim, <laughs> hoping they don't drown, but, <laughs> but they, they immediately learn something about swimming as opposed to sitting them down in a classroom and saying, okay, here's lesson one, lesson two, lesson three, and so forth. But there's a, a, whole lot of, um, a whole lot of science behind the idea of learning from failing, this kind of immersive experience. And what gaming or what digital, the digital experience allows for is learning without consequences. So, for example, you know, flight simulator, it's, it's a hell of a lot better to learn in a flight simulator that you, you don't have certain skills that would cause a crash scientist to actually learn it, you know, by doing it for real. But that's a, that's a very, it's a deeply scientific principle that is very, very few, I think, very few trainers actually try to put in because it's so difficult. And if you don't have digital skills, you're not able to. It's, it's really, really hard if you don't have a, like a programming background right now anyway. Yeah, that was, that's going to be my question on this. I mean, it, and I'm not disagreeing at all that you know, failing fast is a great way to learn and to master tools, considering I fail fast all the time. Uh, why does no one do this? I can't think of a corporate environment or a business environment anywhere that does this approach. If you, t if you suggest, huh? Well, I don't, I, see, I don't know if I agree with that though, because if you talk to any organization, you say, yeah, we're just going to give your people the, this platform, this set of tools and let them figure it out. Oh, no, 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 no. There's entire segments of organizations around change management. And it turns it into this massive production exercise where there's certain expectations around the skills that you're going to develop to roll this out. And it's going to take six months to get it in everybody's hands. And why does... Why is there, if this is such a solid scientific principle, why is no one doing it? And if, if someone is, I take it back. But I haven't heard about it. Well, so like if you think about the change management models, and there are multiple models that exist, which is a which is kind of that's probably part of the problem, which is, you know, you you go through this process of of figuring out what the needs of the organization are just generally all of the models do this, right? There's a an understanding of what what the needs of the organization are, you concept and design the change that you want to to 
to enact within the organization. You implement it and then you do post basically a debriefing. And the the goal of learning within that, the actual change on the people side, that doesn't actually get fleshed out except by the person who's doing the teaching, the coaching, the training. And so it's their methodology that really needs to be better developed. And I think I still stand on my on my on my laurels here, which is <laughs> which is to say, I wonder what the etymology of of be, sitting on one's laurels are. I, I presume that's a, a Greco-Roman thing. Anyway, but the idea here is that I think those people do not have a proper andrecological method. They're just coming in and they're like, okay, well, this team needs to know how to use Excel better or or Visio, and so they come in and they teach technique and they teach features and they don't actually teach in a way that people learn and i will i will note that uh productivity book group discussed a book see way back when let me see if i have a date um i don't have a date on this but uh productivity book group discussed the book make it stick the science of successful learning and i highly recommend it to everyone who is interested in this area it is a very dense book it's it's written not so friendly to a popular audience, but the book is actually really, really helpful. It's written by multiple authors, and they all pull together all of the latest research. I'm sorry, here, I have the data 2016. So so Make It Stick, The Science of Successful Learning, it really helps survey the various aspects of what helps to make a book, sorry, what helps to make learning stick how do you actually get retention comprehension so that so that and recall so that students anyone whether that be children or adults are able to actually learn truly learn and it does a really great job of explaining some of these core components and i think it's on the trainers heads not necessarily on either od which is organizational development leaders or change management professionals who are typically consultants brought in to make that stuff happen the the goal is that it's two tiers down it's the it's the who's teaching and are they capable of teaching in a way that helps an adult learner truly learn? And are those adult learners motivated to learn? Many times that's part of the problem is that they, they come into the room and you know someone has told them that they have to do something, but they're not necessarily bought in to the idea that they that they do. Well, part of that is because in most of those adult learning situations, they're not measured on retention and um, recitation. They're measured on immediate application, but yet that's not what they're being taught. They're being taught, here's all the parts of the engine, and then they go back and get measured on where they're driving to. Yeah, that's a, that's that's uh, that's right. That's that's a big failing um, in my point of view. I think that the, the, you're asking for examples. I think the Army and most of the military, they train through through fail basically by failing first they put you in a safe environment like boot camp or whatever um or they they do practice they spend their whole time drilling and practice doing practice runs of what might happen in the real the real um real combat and you learn you know they have these elaborate after action reports or after action meetings where they sit down and analyze in depth what they just practiced and what went wrong and that ethos of practicing hard under a stimulated situation, learning from it and then carrying it forward is one of the things I've read that when military, I guess, military officers make the transition to civilian life, they're amazed that 
this does not happen in civilian life and they can't understand why. That's that, that's how I first heard about it. I would agree with you. That's a great example and that it's not done in the civilian world. The other element to consider that applies to not only Fortune 500, but small businesses is the fact that the people is not looking to educate towards the future, to learn towards the future, but to solve a particular issue, whatever the issue is. Oh, we need to learn how to do macros in Excel. Well, why? Well, because we need to solve this problem. Therefore, when you go and train the people, you don't train the people towards how can we use this knowledge or this uh, piece of information more. It's really teach on a one time. And sadly, there is a significant amount of people on those environments who has been used or trained to use the piece of knowledge once and then discard the piece of knowledge. You know, we don't evolve and see how we can use the same piece of knowledge more than once. That's one one big issue because, yes, we do the training. Yes, we teach the people, but the people get that knowledge to be used on that box with those specific set of conditions. And in many cases, don't learn to think, how can I use this same knowledge on other pieces or on other boxes that then make that teaching and that knowledge, you know, really hard to to be significant for the organization. But say a lot of that still comes back to the measure. That's how this stuff gets evaluated. If you take somebody who's coming out of college, you put them into a work assignment. In college, they're being focused. They're being guided in most cases, and especially at the high school level too, gather information, stick that information in your head, return that information back when asked, and in some cases, maybe apply that information. But when you transfer that person into a work environment, now it's, well, I don't care how you get there. These are the tools you have. You will use these tools better, worse, or otherwise. This is the end result you have to get to. Figure it out. And I think that's where the failing is because honestly, that figure it out is what we should be teaching them back in high school and in college because we all know the corporate environment is not going to change. They're always going to be operating this way. It's just the way they do. They're, they're not that enlightened. So how do you set somebody up for success? You teach them how to take this limited set of stuff and find that solution based on that limited set of stuff. Every time I think about this, all I can think of is Tom Hanks in the movie Castaway. He had nothing. And he had to work with what he had and find solutions to the problems. We're just not teaching that. And I agree with you. We are not teaching that. We're not teaching that at many levels. And and it is a big, big problem. You know, it is not solve it with the tools we have. It's how we are going to solve it. And if you don't know, then go and buy the new tool. Even that the organization may have plenty of tools to, to solve the problem. And now there's a move to bite-sized learning, which is an argument that learning something complex can happen in you know by watching a five-minute YouTube video. The companies are unwilling to invest the time and create the immersive environment and the the right kind of e-learning and the right kind of self-reflection and self-knowledge and evaluation. They're totally unwilling, not totally, but by by and large, unwilling to invest in that. Okay, but wait a minute. That. There's something to be said for small chunked up learning. And the reason why I say that is, is because if big learning worked, we'd be doing it all the time and be very successful at it. That's not happening. You know, I'm, I'm somewhat of an amateur car guy and I don't know what I do without YouTube anymore. 
because when it comes to changing the starter on a Jeep Liberty, I'm not going to go through a four-hour e-learning course on how the 3.8 liter engine was designed to get to that piece of the course. I want that piece of information. It's a procedural mechanism process that I can look at, I can understand, and then I can apply. Why does that have to be any different than when we think about a major platform like, oh, I don't know, Office 365? Why do I have to spend you know three days of training when I can go through, if the training is set up right, and if we think about this properly and say, this should be effect and result driven training. Therefore, to get to this result, you need to know these following things and put them together in this order. I, I was saying because you are not you are not you are not doing five minute YouTube video, and then going out and putting it in front of your house. I repair all kind of Jeep liberties. Okay, so that's, that's one of the big difference. Well, no, but that's that's okay. But that's that's a, that is a big difference. But we're also talking about something then that is a very small segment of people. People who go out and train and focus and become experts in a particular field. Yeah, I totally get that. They have to learn everything inside out and sideways. But that's like less than 1% of the population for that particular topic area. The other 99% are going to look at that and go, that's too complicated. That's too difficult. I'm not going to bother with. It. I'm just trying to understand why why does it have to be so heavy? I mean when when I've rolled out platforms with companies, you'll have like multi-day rollouts and things, you know, learn this stuff, do this stuff. No, use cases, something simple. I agree with you when you talk to people who are looking into the learning. The problem that I have found with what you're saying and agreeing with you is what the company thinks is if we throw the people into the water, they are never going to use all this whistle and, and, and stuff that we have just put in this platform. So let's block three days out of the organization and they are going to learn. And I agree with you. Most people will learn a lot more effectively if you put it into little bits and pieces, but also statistically, okay, most people, doesn't matter if we're talking about small businesses or large corporations, don't want to learn. The, the, really, the percentage of people who learns after they exit school is so tiny that it is a problem for people, for corporations and for businesses to that to that learning. One of the problems with e-learning and learning inside of many of these organizations is the people do not is not interested into acquiring this knowledge. I I mean looking I look at us on the podcast and we're always discussing about new learning, new things, but I understand at the same time that this is an exception. And it's an exception that, if I may say, based on what I've been experiencing with my kids, is start at that age. Okay, it's not, it's not even forget about us. The the poor habits start at that age okay? when when you need to when you have you know the kids who are in the perfect time to learn and they don't want to learn. Why am I going to learn that? I don't recall. I'm sure I say it, but I don't recall as a kid saying why I'm going to need to learn that. I was a sponge. Anything you could teach me at that age, I will have tried to learn. You don't have that anymore. Oh, you never heard me in algebra class. 
Hey, you get you get five f five plus plus x equal to y, and then you figure it out. Well, how much is the grocery bill? That's not how it works. That's why we have Excel. <laughs> just to be clear, okay, for kids like me from algebra class who couldn't work out anything. But th- this is where I kind of get back to this whole thing, and you hit a key point that you know, somebody deploys a solution, or let's let's keep it in the personal context. We choose a tool. We take something like Evernote or Notion or OneNote. It's like, okay, I'm going to use this. And we feel like we have to use, some people feel like they have to use every feature in there to derive the value of what they're investing in that particular tool. Now, if it's something like OneNote, it's free. If it's something like Evernote or Notion, there's a cost tied. So you've got all these features like, well, I'm paying for it, so I better use it. Well, now scale it up to something at like a small business level where you're paying maybe couple thousand dollars a year or corporate level where it's a couple hundred thousand dollars. We're paying for it. You're going to learn how to use it. Doesn't say that there's any value to using it. And that's where I struggle with this. We are not teaching people how to be critically analytical when it comes to, is this necessary? Do I need to know this? I agreed with you 100%. The thinking is exactly what you said. Oh, if I'm paying 20, then I need to get 40 out of out of value. Well, and and I will argue with this, what is the what is the 40? How you are going to measure this 40? Because the problem is not that you want to get a return from the investment you do. Fine. That's good business practice. Okay? The problem is you I see a lot of people arguing that they need to get that Okay, but they have no system to measure that. They just want to get a value. They just somehow want the software to say, hey, you know, somebody should code on the back of that software and say, hey, you have used this software for 20 hours now. So you get your return on investment because that's if you don't have any measurement of how you're going to get that out of the software. Well, that will work well. And that's where you start into this process from from the get-go and say, okay, what is going to make this successful? What is my success criteria on using this? In in a business environment, it's what's the success criteria for investing in this particular platform? In a personal thing, how do I know this is helping? Or how do I know it's, how am I going to be able to tell that it's helping me? And that's so often a question that we don't ask. And again, we're not teaching anybody to ask that question. You know, is this thing going to make things better for me? We think back to the, I'll circle this all the way back. We go back to the PDAs. PDAs were great. Palm Pilots were fantastic. What was the first logical evolution, though, of a Palm Pilot? A, um, a Treo that had wireless connectivity. Why? Because at that point, we recognized that there was a cap as to how much it could give us. We weren't going to get any more benefit without being able to, to connect. Well, we have to be able to look at those anything we're doing and evaluate it with the same type of criteria. I can use my paper notebook and it can be really helpful for me. And how do I know it? Is it being helped? Is my success criteria basically that it gives me warm and fuzzy feeling? Well, honestly, it might be, but we don't quantify any of that. And we're not teaching anybody to say, think about where the end is. Where is this trip taking you? If you don't know where you're going, why leave the house? I think that's a great point. I I think it's to, to, to try to tie together productivity and corporations. I think what what's happening in companies is that they're not asking that question about the endpoint and they're not being honest about the inputs that they're getting in terms of students. So there's they're I put in the show notes a, an article I read about the, the top ten things they really should have taught you in high school. Probably you, you probably have seen lists like this where people they should have learned how to manage money, mental health, this one says um, dating, house and car. 
it has time management. But the the raw material, the the 25-year-old that's joining a company doesn't have a whole bunch of core skills. And obviously, to, for the organization to succeed, they need to have them. But what's not happening is, just as Art said, companies aren't staying at the strategic level and saying, okay, everybody needs to know what a good meeting looks like and how to lead one if you're the facilitator. Okay, let's let's call that a core skill. How do we how do we have people develop those skills over time so that they go from being novices to being very, very expert and even beyond where they could teach other people? Just a simple question like that isn't being asked or answered. It's just being treated as if it will happen somehow by some kind of osmosis or magic or just tell someone they need to get better and then they need to go and find out how, well, what does better look like? What measurement is he or she talking about? And then wh- where do I get the training that would take me to that measurement? So it, it, I think that's an example of the poor approach that's being used. And it's no surprise that we're not getting results as a, as a, as a, as a consequence. And I think productivity, to tie it back to our, 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 our sort of main area of focus, is just, just another example of what happens with meetings. What's the value that we can bring to listeners as it relates to either a core part of what we're talking about in the discussion, sort of like what should a business professional listening to this episode do as a consequence of a system that's clearly failed them from the get-go, it sounds like, and without us getting back into that conversation, to a corporate environment, a corporate culture that I argue is the reason why deep learning doesn't happen. To Cal Newport's credit, when he talks about deep work, I frequently actually think about it from the perspective of deep learning, not from from the perspective of deep work. I think I think he's off the mark on that, uh, very much so because he's an academic who spends his time in an ivory tower. But the 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 real true value is actually in in his method is actually in deep learning, and I think that if we can if we can provide listeners with a a way for us to understand productivity through the lens of using these tools that we've been talking about, these strategies, then they can walk away with something that is tangible and actionable. And what is that? What is it they can do today besides make it stick? I recommend everybody to read Make It Stick. Uh, <laughs> um, but what is it that folks could do uh, leaving today's episode. If I go back to my experience with, with Zwift, I'd say if, we, if our assumption is correct and the funding is in place, let's, let's assume for the sake of argument that the, the company has realized at a high level. So the CEO realizes that I have a problem with certain skills. So that the, 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 the decision to invest has already been made. Let's say that the convincing has already happened. And the money is there. So let's, let's just assume for sake of argument that that's true. Then um, they need to look to create these digitally enhanced immersive environments like Flight Simulator or, or Zwift, in which a novice can come to realize that they're a novice and, they're, and therefore start the self-evaluation and the self-knowledge. It used to be delivered in a classroom in three days, like Art said, you know, by at the end of three days, you realized, oh, okay. But no one has the time and the inclination for that any longer. It, it, it needs to happen quickly. And the quickest way that, that I think we've seen is to throw someone into the environment and have them fail so fast that they become a hungry learner after 10, 15, 20, 30 minutes. And the digitally enhanced environments for learning 
seem to be a way to do that. So to direct, so the, my advice is to direct their attention to creating these environments for all of all of the all corporate learners, everyone who who who, who works in a company. It's just a matter of what skills and what what experts do you want to work with and on so that you can create effective experience. I work with 99% of my time in and around small businesses, and they don't have the kind of midsize and, and enterprise level budgets and also just sheer numbers of people that they are attempting to facilitate a more productive environment, that is labor productivity. And what I really try to suggest to all small business owners is to understand the difference between labor productivity and personal productivity and how to actually build both of those. Ultimately, what happens is that when you teach individual productivity, personal productivity skills to your people, they end up having greater and better collaborative skills, soft skills, and therefore greater labor productivity. And so that's number one, is figure out how you're going to do that and then do it. The Then the, the flip side to that is if you're going to teach personal productivity, many times budget is an issue. And what I did in my last company, and I've brought that over into this company, although we're fairly small, so it, it's not particularly as, as rigorous as it was in my prior company. Uh, but the idea was, was that we would send one to maybe three people to a conference or to a training. And the requirement is that we would pay for it, but they had to come back and teach it to everybody else in the company. And so we had a standing meeting for when people went to go do a training, then they would come back and there would be a scheduled time frame. say they would have two or three days after returning. And whoever wanted to it was was mostly optional. Sometimes it was was plenary, but most of the time was optional for people to come and spend. It was either a lunch period or some other period where those people would come back and they would then teach the highlights of what they learned in that space. And they always shared. It was also a requirement. Everybody would share their notes, conference materials, and whatnot into our our shared document portal. And back then we were a much simpler company. So we had just a, a single shared drive where all of those things were, were saved. Uh, this was, you know, early 2000s. So, you know, it was very, very simple. And they would share all those things into that, into that folder on the shared drive. And so everyone had access that if they wanted to go deep into that particular topic that was learned or the topics that were learned at a conference, you could say to, to the people who went, hey, do you mind us spending some time learning about what you learned about? And what I found is that the interdepartmental learning, the fact that the persons who went to the training then had to teach what they learned and then sometimes had to coach further on what they, on what they learned to somebody else in the company who hadn't been there, all of that turned into a collaboration that was outside of transactional work and led to greater cohesion of the team and to actually, as, as far as my statistics were concerned, my metrics were concerned, it was actually because of that, that we actually had a more efficient work being done. People were really stepping up to the plate because everyone had very defined roles in my particular last company. If, if you were bad at what you did, people noticed and uh, and the business suffered. And so once we started doing that, we saw this exponential growth in the 
people. And then the business started to do really well in areas that it wasn't doing well before. And that was really the only thing that had changed. So I highly recommend that if you're in a small business environment or if you're in a team environment within a large organization, the idea of learning something learning something, and then teaching it to your peers can be a really great function. And, and it could take up a lot of time if there's a lot of conference going and a lot of workshop going. So you have to do some limitation on it. But if there's some core things and core elements that you're trying to teach to people, send people to training and then have them come back and and either you know, train or coach people internally on it. And you'll find that that person becomes a go-to resource for that particular thing. For me, it's sandboxes. I have found no matter the size of the organization, small, large, doesn't matter. If you provide people safe spaces to try what they've learned, to try what they're learning with no negative impact, if they fail, they are more likely to try and to practice. So you will find your people who are earlier early adopters and mid adopters much faster that way. If you are if it's a technology deployment, great. Then one of the earliest questions you should be asking is how do we set up a training environment? How do we set up a testing environment? <clears throat> Excuse me. How do we set up a, can people set up their own spaces to try? Uh, if it's something like uh, SharePoint for example that I deal with all the time, I tell everybody I say look, if you're going to be working on building a SharePoint site, set up a sandbox. Do your Play with it. Go in there. Create goofy things. Try things out. See how it works. See how it lays out. Because every time you go to something that other people are going to look at, you're going to want to make sure that your skills are solid enough that you're going to be comfortable working in that public space and you learn that in that private space. So set up sandbox. My recommendation is a hard recommendation because I believe every organization should have a learning plan and a learning plan that applies to improve people and promote people inside of organizations that I understand it doesn't happen for many factors. But but I really recommend that. Create your own. If the organization doesn't have it, fine. Create it your own. Your own learning, where you are going, what you need to learn to go and to get where you want to go. And if the organization, if you're in charge of that organization, then build it so that way you can get there. Yeah, I just add to what Ray said in terms of sending someone away to come back from a conference or a learning opportunity to share it. I think the the interactive methods are the best. So the the, the individual coaching, like he said, or the, the the live teaching, and then add to that recording the conversations, the coaching conversations, so that others can learn from them. Um, come back with videos of the event, put together quizzes based on the content that is developed, that is shared. Anything that can make the, the, the content interactive for the person who is learning, it can make it more sandboxy and more, uh, more likely to stick. I'll just say, if you find someone, especially somebody who's new to an organization or new to a group, and you get the sense that they have never learned these mechanics of you know, success criteria and things like that, teach them. Don't tell them they need to go learn it. Teach them. Pass it on and pay it forward. Agreed. We are all in this together, as they say. With that, I would tell everybody to go check out Francis's second edition now of Perfect Time-Based Productivity and many of the things we talked about and more, including Francis's assessment that that really walks people through the elements of what makes someone productive is all caked into the book. So go ahead and check that out. And uh, we appreciate Francis for his work always in the productivity community for helping people 
become more productive. So thank you, friend. With that, if you have a comment or question about this episode, something we discussed in the episode, feel free to reach out to us by going to productivitycast.net forward slash the episode number. So episode one, it's 001. So whatever the episode number is, just go ahead and plug that in and you'll be on the episode page. And there at the bottom of the page, feel free to leave a comment or question. And one of us will be glad to respond. There on the episode page, you'll also find our show notes with links to anything we discussed so you can easily jump to them. We have our transcript, which is readable right there on the page. Just click on the read more link underneath the transcript section and it'll pop open. Uh, There's also a PDF download so you can download it and listen and read if you need to print it out, all that fun stuff. And uh, you can also learn how to follow us on your favorite podcast app there on the website by clicking on the subscribe page. So please subscribe and uh, keep following. Now, if you have another question about personal productivity generally that you maybe you want us to talk about on a future episode or something like that, go ahead to productivitycast.net forward slash contact. You can leave a written message. That is, you could type up a little message and send it to us, or you can record, I think under a minute, I think you have a minute of audio that you can record directly from the web browser. And as my understand it, you can do it from the desktop and from your mobile device. So you could just open up your mobile browser, click on that little leave a message button. It'll connect to your, your, your microphone and uh, you can leave a message. So that's pretty cool. And so check it out. <laughs> uh, also, if you can, please leave a rating or review in Apple Podcasts or still using iTunes or another of the apps that allow you to, I think Stitcher allows you to leave a, a rating or review. Uh, this helps us to grow our personal productivity listening community. And we really appreciate and thank you for listening and to, for being a part of the community and all of that fun stuff. So thank you. Finally, thanks to Augusto, Francis and Art for joining me here on this cast on this episode of productivity cast and here's to your productive life take care everybody that's it for this productivity cast the weekly show about all things productivity with your hosts ray sydney smith and augusto Pinaud, with francis wade and art gelwicks